Chapter Twelve of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter Twelve. Such was Welbeck's tale, listened to by me with an eagerness in which every faculty was absorbed. How adverse to my dreams were the incidents that had just been related! The curtain was lifted, and a scene of guilt and ignominy disclosed where my rash and inexperienced youth had suspected nothing but loftiness and magnanimity. For a while the wondrousness of this tale kept me from contemplating the consequences that awaited us. My unfledged fancy had not hitherto soared to this pitch. All was astounding by its novelty, or terrific by its horror. The very scene of these offences partook to my rustic apprehension of fairy splendour and magical abruptness. My understanding was bemazed, and my senses were taught to distrust their own testimony. From this musing state I was recalled by my companion, who said to me in solemn accents, "'Mervyn, I have but two requests to make.' Assist me to bury these remains, and then accompany me across the river. I have no power to compel your silence on the acts that you have witnessed. I have meditated to benefit as well as to injure you, but I do not desire that your demeanor should conform to any other standard than justice. You have promised, and to that promise I trust." If you choose to fly from this scene, to withdraw yourself from what you may conceive to be a theatre of guilt or peril, the avenues are open, retire unmolested and in silence. If you have a manlike spirit, if you are grateful for the benefits bestowed upon you, if your discernment enables you to see that compliance with my request will entangle you in no guilt and betray you into no danger, "'Stay, and aid me in hiding these remains from human scrutiny. "'Watson is beyond the reach of further injury. "'I never intended him harm, though I have torn from him his sister and friend, "'and have brought his life to an untimely close. "'To provide him a grave is a duty that I owe to the dead and to the living. "'I shall quickly place myself beyond the reach of inquisitors and judges, "'but would willingly rescue from molestation or suspicion "'those whom I shall leave behind. "'What would have been the fruit of deliberation "'if I had had the time or power to deliberate, I know not. "'My thoughts flowed with tumult and rapidity. "'To shut this spectacle from my view was the first impulse, "'but to desert this man in a time of so much need "'appeared a thankless and dastardly deportment. "'To remain where I was, to conform implicitly to his direction, "'required no effort. "'Some fear was connected with his presence, and with that of the dead, "'but in the tremulous confusion of my present thoughts, "'solitude would conjure up a thousand phantoms. "'I made no preparation to depart. "'I did not verbally assent to his proposal.' He interpreted my silence into an acquiescence. He wrapped the body in the carpet, and then, lifting one end, cast at me a look which indicated his expectations that I would aid him in lifting this ghastly burden. During this process the silence was unbroken. I knew not whither he intended to convey the corpse. He had talked of burial, but no receptacle had been provided. 
how far safety might depend upon his conduct in this particular, I was unable to estimate. I was in too heartless a mood to utter my doubts. I followed his example in raising the corpse from the floor. He led the way into the passage and downstairs. Having reached the first floor, he unbolted a door which led into the cellar. The stairs and passage were illuminated by lamps that hung from the ceiling and were accustomed to burn during the night. Now, however, we were entering darksome and murky recesses. "'Return,' said he, in a tone of command, "'and fetch the light. I will wait for you.' I obeyed. As I returned with the light, a suspicion stole into my mind that Welbeck had taken this opportunity to fly, and that, on regaining the foot of the stairs, I should find the spot deserted by all but the dead. My blood was chilled by this image. The momentary resolution it inspired was to follow the example of the fugitive, and leave the persons whom the ensuing day might convene on this spot to form their own conjectures as to the cause of this catastrophe. Meanwhile I cast anxious eyes forward. Welbeck was discovered in the same place and posture in which he had been left. Lifting the corpse and its shroud in his arms, he directed me to follow him. The vaults beneath were lofty and spacious. He passed from one to the other till we reached a small and remote cell. Here he cast his burden on the ground. In the fall the face of Watson chanced to be disengaged from its covering. Its closed eyes and sunken muscles were rendered in a tenfold degree ghastly and rueful by the feeble light which the candle shed upon it. This object did not escape the attention of Welbeck. He leaned against the wall, and folding his arms resigned himself to reverie. He gazed upon the countenance of Watson, but his looks denoted his attention to be elsewhere employed. As to me, my state will not be easily described. My eye roved fearfully from one object to another. By turns it was fixed upon the murdered person and the murderer. The narrow cell in which we stood, its rudely fashioned walls and arches, destitute of communication with the external air, and its palpable dark scarcely penetrated by the rays of a solitary candle, added to the silence which was deep and universal, produced an impression on my fancy which no time will obliterate. Perhaps my imagination was distempered by terror— the incident which I am going to relate may appear to have existed only in my fancy. Be that as it may, I experienced all the effects which the fullest belief is adapted to produce. Glancing vaguely at the countenance of Watson, my attention was arrested by a convulsive motion in the eyelids. This motion increased, till at length the eyes opened, and a glance, languid but wild, was thrown around. Instantly they closed, and the tremulous appearance vanished. I started from my place and was on the point of uttering some involuntary exclamation. At the same moment, Welbeck seemed to recover from his reverie. "'How is this?' said he. "'Why do we linger here? Every moment is precious. We cannot dig for him a grave with our hands. Wait here while I go in search of a spade.' Saying this, he snatched the candle from my hand and hasted away. My eye followed the light as its gleams shifted their place upon the walls and ceilings, 
and gradually vanishing gave place to unrespited gloom. This proceeding was so unexpected and abrupt that I had no time to remonstrate against it. Before I retrieved the power of reflection, the light had disappeared and the footsteps were no longer to be heard. I was not, on ordinary occasions, destitute of equanimity, but perhaps the imagination of man is naturally abhorrent of death until tutored into indifference by habit. Every circumstance combined to fill me with shuddering and panic. For a while I was enabled to endure my situation by the exertions of my reason. That the lifeless remains of a human being are powerless to injure or benefit, I was thoroughly persuaded. I summoned this belief to my aid, and was able, if not to subdue, yet to curb my fears. I listened to catch the sound of the returning footsteps of Welbeck, and hoped that every new moment would terminate my solitude. No signal of his coming was afforded. At length it occurred to me that Welbeck had gone with no intention to return, that his malice had seduced me hither to encounter the consequences of his deed. He had fled and barred every door behind him. This suspicion may well be supposed to overpower my courage and to call forth desperate efforts for my deliverance. I extended my hands and went forward. I had been too little attentive to the situation and direction of these vaults and passages to go forward with undeviating accuracy. My fears, likewise, tended to confuse my perceptions and bewilder my steps. Notwithstanding the danger of encountering obstructions, I rushed towards the entrance with precipitation. My temerity was quickly punished. In a moment I was repelled by a jutting angle of the wall with such force that I staggered backward and fell. The blow was stunning, and when I recovered my senses, I perceived that a torrent of blood was gushing from my nostrils. My clothes were moistened with this unwelcome effusion, and I could not but reflect on the hazard which I should incur by being detected in this recess, covered by these accusing stains. This reflection once more set me on my feet and incited my exertions. I now proceeded with greater wariness and caution. I had lost all distinct notions of my way. My motions were at random. All my labor was to shun obstructions and to advance whenever the vacuity would permit. By this means the entrance was at length found, and, after various efforts, I arrived, beyond my hopes, at the foot of the staircase. I ascended, but quickly encountered an insuperable impediment. The door at the stairhead was closed and barred. My utmost strength was exerted in vain to break the lock or the hinges. Thus were my direst apprehensions fulfilled. Welbeck had left me to sustain the charge of murder, to obviate suspicions the most atrocious and plausible that the course of human events is capable of producing. Here I must remain till the morrow, till someone can be made to overhear my calls and come to my deliverance. What effects will my appearance produce on the spectator? Terrified by phantoms and stained with blood, shall I not exhibit the tokens of a maniac as well as an assassin? 
the corpse of Watson will quickly be discovered. If, previous to this disclosure, I should change my blood-stained garments and withdraw into the country, shall I not be pursued by the most vehement suspicions, and, perhaps, hunted to my obscurest retreat by the ministers of justice? I am innocent, but my tale, however circumstantial or true, will scarcely suffice for my vindication. My flight will be construed into a proof of incontestable guilt." While harassed by these thoughts, my attention was attracted by a faint gleam cast upon the bottom of the staircase. It grew stronger, hovered for a moment in my sight, and then disappeared. That it proceeded from a lamp or candle borne by someone along the passages was no untenable opinion, but was far less probable than the effulgence was meteorous. I confided in the latter supposition, and fortified myself anew against the dread of preternatural dangers. My thoughts reverted to the contemplation of the hazards and suspicions which flowed from my continuance in this spot. In the midst of my perturbed musing, my attention was again recalled by an illumination like the former. Instead of hovering and vanishing, it was permanent— no ray could be more feeble, but the tangible obscurity to which it succeeded rendered it conspicuous as an electrical flash. For a while I eyed it without moving from my place, and in momentary expectation of its disappearance. Remarking its stability, the propriety of scrutinizing it more nearly, and of ascertaining the source whence it flowed, was at length suggested. Hope, as well as curiosity, was the parent of my conduct. Though utterly at a loss to assign the cause of this appearance, I was willing to believe some connection between that cause and the means of my deliverance. I had scarcely formed the resolution of descending the stair when my hope was extinguished by the recollection that the cellar had narrow and grated windows through which the light from the street might possibly have found access. A second recollection supplanted this belief, for in my way to this staircase my attention would have been solicited, and my steps, in some degree, been guided by light coming through these avenues. Having returned to the bottom of the stair, I perceived every part of the long-drawn passage illuminated. I threw a glance forward to the quarter whence the rays seemed to proceed, and beheld, at a considerable distance, Welbeck in the cell which I had left, turning up the earth with a spade. After a pause of astonishment, the nature of the error which I had committed rushed upon my apprehension. I now perceived that the darkness had misled me to a different staircase from that which I had originally descended. It was apparent that Welbeck intended me no evil, but had really gone in search of the instrument which he had mentioned. This discovery overwhelmed me with contrition and shame, though it freed me from the terrors of imprisonment and accusation. To return to the cell which I had left, and where Welbeck was employed in his disastrous office, was the expedient which regard to my own safety unavoidably suggested. Welbeck paused at my approach, and betrayed a momentary consternation at the sight of my ensanguined visage. The blood, by some inexplicable process of nature, 
perhaps by the counteracting influence of fear, had quickly ceased to flow. Whether the cause of my evasion and of my flux of blood was guessed, or whether his attention was withdrawn by more momentous objects from my condition, he proceeded in his task in silence. A shallow bed and a slight covering of clay were provided for the hapless Watson. Welbeck's movements were hurried and tremulous. His countenance betokened a mind engrossed by a single purpose, in some degree foreign to the scene before him. An intensity and fixedness of features were conspicuous that led me to suspect the subversion of his reason. Having finished the task, he threw aside his implement. He then put into my hand a pocket-book, saying it belonged to Watson, and might contain something serviceable to the living. I might make what use of it I thought proper. He then remounted the stairs, and, placing the candle on a table in the hall, opened the principal door and went forth. I was driven by a sort of mechanical impulse in his footsteps. I followed him, because it was agreeable to him, and because I knew not whither else to direct my steps. The streets were desolate and silent. The watchman's call, remotely and faintly heard, added to the general solemnity. I followed my companion in a state of mind not easily described. I had no spirit even to inquire whither he was going. It was not till we arrived at the water's edge that I persuaded myself to break silence. I then began to reflect on the degree in which his present schemes might endanger Welbeck or myself. I had acted long enough a servile and mechanical part, and had been guided by blind and foreign impulses. It was time to lay aside my fetters, and demand to know whither the path tended in which I was importuned to walk. Meanwhile I found myself entangled among boats and shipping. I am unable to describe the spot by any indisputable tokens. I know merely that it was the termination of one of the principal streets. Here Welbeck selected a boat and prepared to enter it. For a moment I hesitated to comply with his apparent invitation. I stammered out an interrogation. Why is this? Why should we cross the river? What service can I do for you? I ought to know the purpose of my voyage before I enter it. He checked himself and surveyed me for a minute in silence. What do you fear? said he. Have I not explained my wishes? Merely cross the river with me, for I cannot navigate a boat by myself. Is there anything arduous or mysterious in this undertaking? We part on the Jersey shore, and I shall leave you to your destiny. All I shall ask from you will be silence, and to hide from mankind what you know concerning me. He now entered the boat and urged me to follow his example. I reluctantly complied. I perceived that the boat contained but one oar, and that was a small one. He seemed startled and thrown into great perplexity by this discovery. "'It will be impossible,' said he, in a tone of panic and vexation, "'to procure another at this hour. What is to be done?' This impediment was by no means insuperable. I had sinewy arms, and I knew well how to use an oar for the double purpose of oar and rudder. 
I took my station at the stern and quickly extricated the boat from its neighbors and from the wharves. I was wholly unacquainted with the river. The bar by which it was encumbered I knew to exist, but in what direction and to what extent it existed, and how it might be avoided in the present state of the tide, I knew not. It was probable, therefore, unknowing as I was of the proper track, that our boat would speedily have grounded. My attention, meanwhile, was fixed upon the oar. My companion sat at the prow, and was in a considerable degree unnoticed. I cast my eyes occasionally at the scene which I had left. Its novelty, joined with the incidents of my condition, threw me into a state of suspense and wonder, which frequently slackened my hand and left the vessel to be driven by the downward current. Lights were sparingly seen, and these were perpetually fluctuating, as masts, yards, and hulls were interposed, and passed before them. In proportion as we receded from the shore, the clamors seemed to multiply, and the suggestion that the city was involved in confusion and uproar did not easily give way to maturer thoughts. Twelve was the hour cried, and this ascended at once from all quarters, and was mingled with the baying of dogs, so as to produce trepidation and alarm. From this state of magnificent and awful feeling I was suddenly called by the conduct of Welbeck. We had scarcely moved two hundred yards from the shore when he plunged into the water. The first conception was that some implement or part of the boat had fallen overboard. I looked back and perceived that his seat was vacant. In my first astonishment I loosened my hold of the oar, and it floated away. The surface was smooth as glass, and the eddy occasioned by his sinking was scarcely visible. I had not time to determine whether this was designed or accidental. Its suddenness deprived me of the power to exert myself for his succor. I wildly gazed around me in hopes of seeing him rise. After some time my attention was drawn by the sound of agitation in the water to a considerable distance. It was too dark for anything to be distinctly seen. There was no cry for help. The noise was like that of one vigorously struggling for a moment, and then sinking to the bottom. I listened with painful eagerness, but was unable to distinguish a third signal. He sunk to rise no more. I was for a time inattentive to my own situation. The dreadfulness and unexpectedness of this catastrophe occupied me wholly. The quick motion of the lights upon the shore showed me that I was borne rapidly along with the tide. How to help myself— how to impede my course or to regain either shore, since I had lost the oar, I was unable to tell. I was no less at a loss to conjecture whither the current, if suffered to control my vehicle, would finally transport me. The disappearance of lights and buildings and the diminution of the noises acquainted me that I had passed the town. It was impossible longer to hesitate. The shore was to be regained by one way only, which was swimming. To any exploit of this kind my strength and my skill were adequate. I threw away my loose gown, put the pocket-book of the unfortunate Watson in my mouth to preserve it from being injured by moisture, and committed myself to the stream. 
I landed in a spot incommoded with mud and reeds. I sunk knee-deep into the former, and was exhausted by the fatigue of extricating myself. At length I recovered firm ground, and threw myself on the turf to repair my wasted strength, and to reflect on the measures which my future welfare enjoined me to pursue. What condition was ever parallel to mine? The transactions of the last three days resembled the monstrous creations of delirium. They were painted with vivid hues on my memory, but so rapid and incongruous were these transitions that I almost denied belief to their reality. They exercised a bewildering and stupefying influence on my mind, from which the meditations of an hour were scarcely sufficient to relieve me. Gradually I recovered the power of arranging my ideas and forming conclusions. Welbeck was dead. His property was swallowed up, and his creditors left to wonder at his disappearance. All that was left was the furniture of his house, to which Mrs. Wentworth would lay claim in discharge of the unpaid rent. What now was the destiny that awaited the lost and friendless Mademoiselle Lodi? Where was she concealed? Welbeck had dropped no intimation by which I might be led to suspect the place of her abode. If my power in other respects could have contributed aught to her relief, my ignorance of her asylum had utterly disabled me. But what of the murdered person? He had suddenly vanished from the face of the earth. His fate and the place of his interment would probably be suspected and ascertained. Was I sure to escape from the consequences of this deed? Watson had relatives and friends. What influence on their state and happiness his untimely and mysterious fate would possess, it was obvious to inquire. This idea led me to the recollection of his pocket-book. Some papers might be there explanatory of his situation. I resumed my feet. I knew not where to direct my steps. I was dropping with wet and shivering with the cold. I was destitute of habitation and friend. I had neither money nor any valuable thing in my possession. I moved forward mechanically and at random. Where I landed was at no great distance from the verge of the town. In a short time I discovered the glimmering of a distant lamp. To this I directed my steps, and here I paused to examine the contents of the pocket-book. I found three bank-notes, each of fifty dollars, enclosed in a piece of blank paper. Besides these were three letters, apparently written by his wife, and dated at Baltimore. They were brief, but composed in a strain of great tenderness, and containing affecting allusions to their child. I could gather from their date and tenor that they were received during his absence on his recent voyage, that her condition was considerably necessitous, and surrounded by wants which their prolonged separation had increased. The fourth letter was open, and seemed to have been very lately written. It was directed to Mrs. Mary Watson. He informed her in it of his arrival at Philadelphia from Santo Domingo, of the loss of his ship and cargo, and of his intention to hasten home with all possible expedition. He told her that all was lost, but one hundred and fifty dollars, the greater part of which he should bring with him to relieve her more pressing wants. The letter was signed and folded and superscribed, but unsealed. 
a little consideration showed me in what manner it became me on this occasion to demean myself. I put the bank-notes in the letter, and sealed it with a wafer, a few of which were found in the pocket-book. I hesitated some time whether I should add anything to the information which the letter contained, by means of a pencil which offered itself to my view, but I concluded to forbear. I could select no suitable terms in which to communicate the mournful truth. I resolved to deposit this letter at the post-office, where I knew letters could be left at all hours. My reflections at length reverted to my own condition. What was the fate reserved for me? How far my safety might be affected by remaining in the city, in consequence of the disappearance of Welbeck, and my known connection with the fugitive, it was impossible to foresee. My fears readily suggested innumerable embarrassments and inconveniences which would flow from this source. Besides, on what pretense should I remain? To whom could I apply for protection or employment? All avenues, even to subsistence, were shut against me. The country was my sole asylum. Here, in exchange for my labor, I could at least purchase food, safety, and repose. But if my choice pointed to the country, there was no reason for a moment's delay. It would be prudent to regain the fields and be far from this detested city before the rising of the sun. Meanwhile I was chilled and chafed by the clothes that I wore. To change them for others was absolutely necessary to my ease. The clothes which I wore were not my own, and were extremely unsuitable to my new condition. My rustic and homely garb was deposited in my chamber at Welbeck's. These thoughts suggested the design of returning hither. I considered that, probably, the servants had not been alarmed, that the door was unfastened and the house was accessible. It would be easy to enter and retire without notice, and this, not without some waverings and misgivings, I presently determined to do. Having deposited my letter at the office, I proceeded to my late abode. I approached and lifted the latch with caution. There were no appearances of any one having been disturbed. I procured a light in the kitchen and hied softly and with dubious footsteps to my chamber. There I disrobed and resumed my check shirt and trousers and fustian coat. This change being accomplished, nothing remained but that I should strike into the country with the utmost expedition. In a momentary review which I took of the past, the design for which Welbeck professed to have originally detained me in his service occurred to my mind. I knew the danger of reasoning loosely on the subject of property. To any trinket or piece of furniture in this house I did not allow myself to question the right of Mrs. Wentworth, a right accruing to her in consequence of Welbeck's failure in the payment of his rent. But there was one thing which I felt an irresistible desire, and no scruples which should forbid me to possess, and that was the manuscript to which Welbeck had alluded, as having been written by the deceased Lodi. I was well instructed in Latin, and knew the Tuscan language to be nearly akin to it. I despaired not of being at some time able to cultivate this language, and believed that the possession of this manuscript might essentially contribute to this end, as well as to many others equally beneficial. 
It was easy to conjecture that the volume was to be found among his printed books, and it was scarcely less easy to ascertain the truth of this conjecture. I entered, not without tremulous sensations, into the apartment which had been the scene of the disastrous interview between Watson and Welbeck. At every step I almost dreaded to behold the spectre of the former rise before me. Numerous and splendid volumes were arranged on mahogany shelves and screened by doors of glass. I ran swiftly over their names and was at length so fortunate as to light upon the book of which I was in search. I immediately secured it and, leaving the candle extinguished on a table in the parlor, I once more issued forth into the street. With light steps and palpitating heart I turned my face towards the country. My necessitous condition, I believed, would justify me in passing, without payment, the Schuylkill Bridge, and the eastern sky began to brighten with the dawn of morning not till I had gained the distance of nine miles from the city. Such is the tale which I proposed to relate to you. Such are the memorable incidents of five days of my life, from which I have gathered more instruction than from the whole tissue of my previous existence. Such are the particulars of my knowledge respecting the crimes and misfortunes of Welbeck, which the insinuations of Wortley, and my desire to retain your good opinion, have induced me to unfold. End of chapter 12